Well, good morning and welcome to Gig Harbor URC and our uh, morning worship service. We're glad that you've joined us this morning to worship and praise our triune God. I uh, pray and trust that you all had a great Christmas and uh, a new year. Uh, we had a, a great time traveling to the Midwest and, and seeing family as well. Well, a few announcements before we get started. This Wednesday evening will be our youth catechism gathering, so January 10th. Um, and everything's been pushed back a week in the month of January. There are five Wednesdays in the month of January. So um, uh, we will be meeting this Wednesday evening, uh, January 10th, at the Wits home. Well, as always, we'll have um, our first communion service, and then we'll have a time of fellowship and refreshments. And then at about 11.15, we will gather again for our catechism service, which is something like a more formal Sunday school. And currently we are uh, walking our way through the Belgic Confession of Faith, which is one of our um, confessions of faith. It's a historic confession of faith. So if you're able to stick around for that, we'd love for you to join us at 11.15. Well, you should have received an order of worship on the front table as you walked in, and you also should find a Psalter hymnal in your pew. If you don't have either of those items, I would encourage you to pick them up as we'll be making use of both of them as we seek to worship and praise our triune God. Well, please stand if you're able for our call to worship this morning, which comes from Romans chapter 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, God here is reminding us that Christ is present among us, not by us ascending to heaven by our own merits or by us descending into the very depths of the earth. Rather, Christ is present in our midst through the word, the word that we hear with our ears in this very moment. And therefore, God is assembling us on this Lord's Day so that he can speak to us, so that he can nourish us, encourage us through his law and his gospel. Well, let us pray responsively, asking that the Lord would bless us in this time of corporate worship. So please follow along with me as we pray, not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts, saying, O Most High, our soul waits for you. You are our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in you because we trust in your holy name. Our hope is in you. Let your presence and steadfast love be upon us, we pray. Amen. Well, your holy God greets you this morning with his blessing. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. 
Well, please turn with me in your Psalter hymnal as we both praise God and ask that he would speak to us this morning and that his son would be present in our midst. So please turn with me to number 172. We'll be singing stanzas one through three. Indeed, God has assembled us that he might speak to us in his written word. And his written word comes to us both in the law, the commands of scripture, as well as in the gospel. And this morning, God is speaking to us in his law through the sixth commandment, the sixth of the ten commandments. After we hear God speak to us in the sixth commandment, we also will recite together God's will for us in the sixth commandment as it comes to us from the Heidelberg Catechism. So hear now the law of our God. Our God says, you shall not murder. What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge, 
I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Well, notice what we confess here in Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 105. Is this question and answer is echoing what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount as he interprets this sixth commandment for us. We hear that if we belittle, if we hate, if we insult our neighbor, either in our thoughts, our words, our gestures, or even our actions, we are guilty of killing our neighbor. And thus, the sixth commandment extends beyond just our actions, beyond just our outward deeds, beyond just the physical act of murder. Furthermore, notice how uh, God's will for us in the sixth commandment also forbids revenge. Not just actual revenge that we carry out with our hands, but even fantasizing about what we would like to say to the person who has insulted us or who has wronged us. If you're guilty of that, you're guilty of murder according to this sixth commandment. And we have to remember that apart from Christ, if we fall short of perfection, we earn God's just condemnation and wrath. And thus God is calling us in this moment to confess our sins and our transgressions. So let us do that very thing as we pray together that corporate prayer of confession, which is printed for you in your order of worship. Please follow along with me as we pray not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts, saying, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And so we are helpless without you. O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare us as we confess our faults. Restore us as we are penitent, according to your promises declared to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and devout life to the glory of your holy name. In this moment of silent confession, we bring you our particular sins. Amen. Well, please stand if you're able as we hear God's gracious declaration of pardon.
Congregation of Christ, if you have confessed your sins and if you are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, uh, you can be assured this morning, no matter how you may feel, be feeling, no matter what your conscience may be saying against you, you may be assured as I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ and on the authority of the word of God, that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved you, not because of works done by yourself in righteousness, but according to his own free mercy. Amen. Well, let us respond to this gracious good news by lifting up our voices and singing the doxology. at the confession of faith element. We here now are going to continue to respond to this declaration of pardon by confessing our, our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith. The reason why we do this each Sunday is to be reminded that we do not create our own version of the Christian faith. Rather, the Christian faith is something that we inherit. We stand upon the shoulders of thousands and millions of, of people who have gone before us. And so, Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be a people who pray without ceasing. And that habit of, of praying continually begins on the Lord's Day as we offer up to our God the prayers and the petitions of our heart. As always, we'll conclude this time of pastoral or congregational prayer by praying together the Lord's Prayer, which is the prayer that Christ himself taught his disciples. Let's pray. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Indeed, O Lord, we confess along with the psalmist here that we stand amazed at the grandeur and beauty of your creation. We confess how so often we are seeing but do not see your handiwork beyond or behind the natural features of this universe. And so in this moment, we call upon you as our creator, 
and as our sustainer, the one who is both able and willing to provide for us both body and soul. Hear us, we ask, for Christ's sake. O Lord, we pray for your universal church, a church that is not tied to any nation or language or ethnicity. And this morning we pray for the mission works within our own federation of churches, the URCNA. We thank you for how we, we witness the, the, the growth of this mustard seed of the kingdom, even within the own confines of, of our denomination. And so we pray specifically this morning for Reverend Chris Coleman as he continues to labor as a church planter in Vancouver, Washington. Uh, we thank you for the growth that you have given that body of believers. Uh, we thank you for uh, the installation of officers for uh, that that church plant, we just pray that you would continue to bless that work. We pray that you would encourage Reverend Coleman and his family. We pray that you continue to add to their number and raise up more elders and deacons. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would also allow them to become a self-sustaining body and in the near future particularize and as an established church within the URCNA. O oh Lord, we also pray for this work uh, Gig Harbor URC, we thank you for the ways in which you have provided for us. We thank you for the blessing of this manifestation of your kingdom here on earth. Uh, we thank you, O oh Lord, for the people whom you have called out of this community to belong to your church here in Gig Harbor. We thank you for the elders and the deacon that you have raised up to serve your sheep here in this community. We pray, O oh Lord, that as your word goes forth each Lord's Day, that much fruit would come forth from that word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant us all perseverance and joy and strength to embrace the callings that you have given to us as members of your body here on earth. O oh Lord, we also pray for our civil magistrates. We thank you that you have raised up men and women to serve us in temporal affairs. And we pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris. We pray for Governor Inslee and we pray for all the local um, officials and meetings that take place in our lands. We pray that your spirits of common and preserving grace would be, upon, would be upon all of our elected officials, restraining their feet from wickedness and vice. We ask that you be working in them in such a way that they would promote a society that is pleasing to you. We ask, O oh Lord, that your gospel would continue to, uh, to have free reign within this country and many other nations um, on this earth. Oh Lord, we also pray for the needs of your people gathered here in Gig Harbor. Uh, you know that we are people who have both bodies and souls, and thus we have both spiritual and physical needs. And we pray for those who are struggling with various physical illnesses and ailments. Uh, we continue to pray for Noelle as she battles this disease. We pray for her appointment here in January. We pray that you give wisdom to her doctors. We continue to pray for Cheryl Minsonides as she battles breast cancer. We ask your blessing to be upon her and Sid as they are transitioning to their new life in Idaho. Oh Lord, we uh, continue to give thanks for the progress that Leah is making as she uh, rehabs her Achilles injury. We pray for others among us who are sick, who are ill this morning, those who are recovering from illnesses. We pray for those who may be recovering from um, surgeries or other such things. We ask that your blessing and your mercy and your peace would be upon us. Uh, we pray for those who struggle and suffer from psychological or emotional distress or mental illnesses. We pray that you would give them strength of mind. We pray that your peace would comfort them in the midst of, of their trying circumstances. 
Oh Lord, we also pray for the families within our, our church. We pray for those who are married. We pray for those who are single. We pray for those who have children in the home, those who have young children. We pray for those who are empty nesters. Whatever season of life we find ourselves in, we pray that you would grant all of us wisdom, contentment, and strength to fulfill the vocations that you have given to us in our present season of life. Oh Lord, we pray for our covenant children. We thank you that you are a God not only to us, but to our children. And we pray that you would grant our children a desire to feed upon your promises, to draw strength and encouragement from your word, O oh Lord, that they would view the preaching of your word each Lord's Day as manna that you've ordained for our nourishment from heaven. O oh Lord, we also pray for those of us who serve you through secular vocations. We ask that you grant us strength to be able to see the legitimacy of the, these vocations as means through which you mask your smiling providence to our neighbors. We pray for those among us who are navigating big decisions within their career. We ask that you grant them wisdom. Uh, we pray for those who desire uh, a different uh, means of employment. We pray also that you grant them contentment and, and again, wisdom to um, act responsibly within their sphere of life. Oh Lord, we pray for our sanctification. We ask that you would make us a people who, who do not belittle our neighbor, but build up our neighbor. We pray that you make us a people who do not insult our neighbor, but, but speak well of our neighbor. And we pray that you make us a people who do not hurt our neighbors, but love our neighbors. Oh Lord, as we soon turn to hear you speak to us both in the, the reading and the preaching of your word, we ask that your spirit would be present, that this would not be a bare word that goes forth, but a word that's accompanied by the power of your most Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, please turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 11. This morning we'll be reading Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 10 through chapter 12, verse 9. So Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. Genesis 11, beginning in verse 10. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word that's given to us this morning. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshed, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshed 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshed had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshed lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. 
When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sireg. And Ru lived after he fathered Sireg 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sireg had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sireg had lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will... Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morai. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved the hill country to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here in Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12, we come across the beginning of the Abrahamic narratives. Genesis 12 through Genesis 25 comprise the Abrahamic section of the book of Genesis. Now, we are taught, we are catechized in our modern Christian evangelical world to see a pretty radical break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sure, we can learn about learn some things about God from the Old Testament, but the Old Testament, including Abraham, isn't all that relevant to us when it comes to our 
personal relationship with the Lord or about how we are saved from the wrath of God or how we are to live in our present secular age or how the church in the 21st century is to conduct herself. Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 4 and other places alludes to this Abrahamic section of the book of Genesis and contradicts this thinking. According to the Apostle Paul, Abraham has a, has a lot to teach us about our Christian lives, about how we are saved, about how we are to live as pilgrims in the midst of a secular age and how the church is to run itself. Abraham, according to Paul, is our father. Abraham is the paradigm for the new covenant Christian. We all are called to sit at the feet of Father Abraham. Indeed, whenever the New Testament is wanting to show areas of discontinuity between the two testaments, it points to Moses and Israel's tenure in the promised land. But whenever the New Testament is wanting to show areas of continuity between the two testaments, it points to Abraham. Anything that's distinctively Abrahamic is reissued in the new covenant. And therefore, Abraham is our father. Abraham is the paradigm for the new covenant Christians. We are to sit at his feet and learn. And thus, the goal of this sermon and the subsequent sermons, as we are in this Abrahamic section of the book of Genesis, is for us to all appreciate and see the relevance of Abram or Abraham for us in our Christian lives. So this morning, as we consider the relevance of Abram, we are going to do so in two ways. First, we're going to consider how we all are called into a life of discipleship as Abram was called into a life of discipleship. And as disciples of our Lord, we are sustained by the promises of God, just as Abram was sustained by the promises of God. So we all are called into a life of of discipleship as Abram was called into a life of discipleship. And as disciples of the Lord, we are sustained by the promises of God as Abram was sustained by the promises of God. Well, here, as I said before, in Genesis 11 and 12, we first come across this, this figure, this patriarch, this character, Abram, who will become Abraham. And we learn here in Genesis 11 and 12 that he uh, resides in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. This is in Mesopotamia. And according to Joshua 24, at this time in Abram's life, he really was a pagan. He was a polytheist. He worshipped many gods. Abram may have known who Yahweh was, but he worshipped many gods. If he did know who Yahweh was, Yahweh was just one of, of many gods in his pantheon of gods. And it's in this setting, it's in this context that God's word comes to Abram and, and completely disrupts and reorients his life. God's word comes to Abram and calls him to forsake his idolatry. To leave all that is familiar to him, country, kin, and his father's house. God is telling Abram that he is going to fulfill his sovereign purposes through Abram and his family. <laughs> Abram, who is at this time an old man, who, and he is married to Sarai, who has no children. But yet God is going to fulfill his purposes through him and his family. Notice that Genesis 12 doesn't begin by saying, Abram 
spoke to the Lord. No, it's the other way around. The Lord's word came to Abram when he was in the land of Ur. God's word came to Abram, called him out of this life of sin and idolatry. And this shows us that it's God's word that creates the church. It's God's word that creates a community of believers, not the other way around. The church does not stand in authority over God's word. The church does not create the Bible. This is what the Roman Catholic Church believes. But throughout scripture, we see that the opposite is actually the case. God's word comes first and creates a community, a redeemed community who themselves are under the authority of that same word. Well, this call of discipleship that we witness here in Genesis 12 is akin to the call of discipleship that we hear from the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus in the Gospels calls his disciples to forsake idolatry to lay aside earthly vocations for a time, to be willing to cut ties with their earthly kin and even lay aside their nationalistic commitments, to lay aside their dreams of the nation of Israel being a global superpower and usurping the glory of Rome. Jesus calls his disciples to forsake these things and follow him. Follow him not as the means to an earthly piece of real estate in the Middle East, but as the way to the Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Thus, the call of discipleship is not a distinctively new covenant idea. We don't just need to go to the Gospels or the Epistles to, to, to learn what it means to be a disciple of the Lord. This idea is as old as Abraham. We see this idea present here in Genesis 11 and 12. Abraham is our father. He is the paradigm for new covenant discipleship. And thus, if we want to learn what it means to be a disciple of the Lord, we need to sit at the feet of Father Abraham. We are called to be pilgrims in the midst of a strange and foreign land, just as Abram here is called to be a pilgrim, to leave his country and sojourn in a foreign land. What this means is that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. What this means is that many of us will be called to pursue secular vocations. Many of us will be called to pursue marriage and family life. But at the same time, as Paul says in Corinthians, we are to live as if we've had no dealings with the world. We are to live as if we have never been married. We are to be engaged with a certain level of detachment. This is what it means to be a pilgrim. A pilgrim like Abram. We also, like Abram, are called to set our minds not merely on earthly things, but on heavenly things, upon the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews 11, we learn that as Abram left his homeland, as he left his country to go to the land of Canaan, he wasn't ultimately seeking an earthly piece of real estate. He was looking forward to the heavenly Jerusalem. He set his mind upon things that are above. We also are to prioritize Christ and his church above country and kin, above every earthly relationship or association. This is what it means to be a disciple of the Lord. So have you responded to God's call of discipleship upon your life? Have you embraced your identity as a pilgrim? Do you set your minds on things that are above? Do you seek the things that are above? 
Do you prioritize Christ and his church above country and kin? This is what it means to be a disciple. This is God's call upon your life. Now, these things, they don't make us a Christian. Rather, these things are the way in which we respond to the gospel. This is the response of justifying faith. Now, we know, we probably all know from personal experience that the path of discipleship is a difficult path. It's filled with many trials, tribulations, and sufferings. We may be called to cut ties with um, friends and family members because of the gospel. We may be slandered in the workplace. We may have to forego certain career opportunities because of our commitment to Christ and his church here on earth. Therefore, what sustains us in our own earthly pilgrimage? What sustains us in the midst of the sufferings that we endure as disciples of the Lord? What sustains us? Well, what sustained our forefather Abram? The promises of God. The promises of God, the very promises that we witness here in Genesis 12 are what sustained Abram as he left his country, his kin, his father's house to set out on what probably seemed to most people a fool's errand. And it's those same promises that sustain us in our lives as disciples, in our earthly pilgrimage. And here God gives to Abram essentially three promises. He promises Abram a land, he promises Abram a people, and he promises Abram that his family will one day bless the nations. And so you'll see in verse 1, God says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then if you skip down to verse 7, after Abram, Sarai, and Lot go to Canaan, the Lord appears to Abram and explicitly says, To your offspring I will give this land. God here is promising that Abram and his family won't just reside in the land of Canaan, but they will possess the land of Canaan. They will inherit the land of Canaan. Well, God also promises to make Abram's family into a great nation. Again, Abram at this time is childless. He and his wife are past childbearing years, but yet God promises in verses 2 and 3 to make Abram into a great and mighty nation. God says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. Now remember what we considered last time we were together at the Tower of Babel. The people at the Tower of Babel, they were lusting for a great name. They wanted to earn for themselves a great and enduring name, but yet God gave them a name of shame. Babel is a pun in the word confused. Here we see that God graciously bestows upon Abram a great name, an enduring name, a name that will uh, last throughout the centuries. And this is a name that Abram doesn't earn for himself. Again, he was a pagan and a polytheist living in the land of Ur. No, this is a name that God graciously bestows upon him. Well, last of all, God also promises that Abram's family will be a blessing to the nations. In verse 3, God says, And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice that God doesn't say in you all the individuals of the earth will be blessed. He says, no, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
Well, again, in the context of uh, Genesis 12, Abram's childless. He's an old man. He's a pilgrim. He doesn't possess any land. He has no real influence upon other nations at this point in time. And so when are these promises or prophecies realized? Well, boys and girls, I mentioned a few weeks ago that you should think of the prophecies or promises of Scripture like a skipping stone. When you skip a stone in a body of water, uh, the goal is to try to get that, that, that stone to skip multiple times. And so, too, these promises have two landing spots. Two, they skip twice, you could say. And so what is the first level of fulfillment of these promises that God gives to our forefather Abram? Well, as we continue on in, in the book of Genesis, we will learn that God graciously grants to Abram and Sarai a child in their old age, Isaac. Isaac then fathers Jacob, who has 12 sons, and Jacob is renamed into Israel. Israel and his sons go to Egypt, and they become a numerous people. They're enslaved by Pharaoh, and in God's providence, he raises up Moses to redeem Israel out of Egypt, and under the leadership of Joshua, the people of Israel inherit the land of Canaan. Then if you fast forward uh, some more, under the reign of Solomon in the book of Kings, we read that the people of Israel became as numerous as the sand of the sea. And so when Israel is in the land of Canaan, under the reign of David and Solomon, we see the first level of fulfillment of both the land promise, they're in the land of Canaan, and the people promise, they're a great and mighty nation. Well, what about that third promise, that Abram's family would then bless the nations. Well, we see glimpses of realization of this promise in the Old Testament. There are certain occasions in which Gentiles are folded into the Old Testament covenant community. You can think of the book of Jonah, where Jonah is commissioned by God to preach both God's judgment and grace to Nineveh, a Gentile nation, which shows us, again, God's heart for the nation. Well, what about the second level of fulfillment? What about that second skip of these promises? Well, I alluded earlier to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author tells us that when Abram was setting out on this pilgrimage, he didn't have his eyes ultimately set on Canaan. His eyes were set on heaven, a city that... Uh, whose uh, foundations and builder is God. Abram was looking forward to the new creation, and therefore the land of Canaan was just a picture, an earthly representation of heaven. That's what the land of Canaan ultimately points to. Well, what about the people promise? What's the second level of fulfillment of the people promise? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Abram's offspring is ultimately Christ himself. Christ is the fulfillment of the offspring of Abram. And in Christ, we see that Abram's offspring takes on an international character. The family of Abraham goes to the nations. This leads us to that third promise. 
that Abram's family would bless the nations. That's ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant. When the gospel does go to the nations, when Christ commissions his disciples to go not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, not just to Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. Now, how does God take the gospel to the nations? Well, the gospel goes to the nations by not merely going to individuals, but by going to families. And that's exactly what we read in, in Genesis 12. God says, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God takes the gospel to the nations by not just taking it to individuals, but by taking it to families. Even in the new covenant, God continues to build his church through the institution of the family. This is what infant baptism represents or signifies. It represents this promise recorded in Genesis 12, that in the new covenant, God will bless the families of the earth. This is why Jesus blesses little infants in the Gospels and says, for such belongs the kingdom of God. This is why Peter on the day of Pentecost says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. This is why in the book of Acts, we witness household baptism. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that children are holy, set apart, and distinct. Again, according to God, in the new covenant, God blesses the families of the earth. God builds his church through the institution of the natural family. Well, as I said before, it's these promises that sustained Abram. As he left all that was familiar to him. As he left his country, as he left his family, as he left his neighbors, and set out on what appeared to most people to be a fool's errand. To set out in a strange land, believing in the promise of a God that says he will be a mighty nation one day. What sustained him in this pilgrimage? The promises of God. These promises that we hear in Genesis 12. And thus what sustains us in our earthly pilgrimage what sustains us as disciples of the Lord Christ? Well, these very same promises. God's promises in his word are given to us to be our nourishment, to be our manna from heaven in the wilderness. Martin Luther once said that the ear is the main organ of the Christian that gives us life. The ear that hears the promises of God. The main organ of the Christian is not the eye, it's the ear. We live by faith and not by sight as the Apostle Paul says. Now the challenge of this is that the promises that we hear in God's word are not physically realized before our eyes. Just as they were not physically realized for Abram. Again, Abram was an old man. He was childless and he was a pilgrim. These promises that we hear in Genesis 12 were not realized before his eyes. He had to live by faith and not by sight. And the struggle when we are called to live by faith and not by sight, is that we oftentimes grow discouraged. We doubt. We grow weak. Because we're tempted to live by the eye and not by the ear. And this is why we need God's word preached into us. This is why we need the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Now, if I were to ask you, how does a Christian grow spiritually in this earthly life, in, in this pilgrimage as a disciple of the Lord? How does a Christian grow spiritually? You might point to habits such as going to church or 
reading your Bible or committing to family devotions as a family. Now, of course, these disciplines are good disciplines and habits. However, it's important to remember that the goal of these habits is to feed upon the promises of God. One of our temptations is merely to go through the motions, to do the rituals, to do the routines, but we do so in a mindless way. There are a lot of Christians who go to church, who read their Bibles, who even do devotions with their families, but they're starving Christians. They're not really feeding upon the promises of God. They're not drawing nourishment and strength from the Word of God. These rituals, these habits, these disciplines are not an end in themselves. They're a means to a greater end. And that end is to feed, to feed upon the manna from heaven. Now, what it means to be a nominal Christian is to view the rituals and routines of the Christian life as an end in themselves. One just goes through the motions. But true Christianity embraces the rituals, the habits, the routines of the Christian life as good, but not as an end in themselves, as a means to a greater end of feeding upon the bread from heaven. Boys and girls, when the elders or the consistory examines a child or a youth for a profession of faith, uh, we as elders are not just looking for whether or not you attend a catechism class or know the relevant question and answers from the Heidelberg or even know your Bibles. Those things are good, those things are important, but what we're ultimately looking for is whether or not you actually are feeding upon the word of God. Whether or not you look to the promises of God as a source of encouragement and strength in your life. It's not just about intellectually knowing God's word. It's about drawing strength from that same word. Uh, in fact, one way in which I personally am challenged from my own father is one habit that he does is he routinely, when he begins his prayers, uh, recites a number of promises, specifically from the Psalter that he has internalized, and then uses those promises to frame the body of his prayer. That's evidence of someone who's looking to the promises of God as a source of nourishment and strength in this earthly life. And so do you find nourishment from God's promises? Do you find strength from his word? Or is this concept a completely foreign idea to you? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, the goal of this sermon, the goal of these subsequent sermons is for us to see the relevance of Abraham or Abram in our lives. Abram is our father. He is the paradigm for the new covenant Christian. And thus, we are to sit at his feet and learn. We are called into a life of discipleship just as Abram was called into a life of discipleship. And thus, we are sustained in this earthly pilgrimage through God's promises that we hear with our ears through his word. Well, before I said that God's, uh, God's, God's promises are not physically realized before our eyes in this life. Now, that's true, apart from one very important exception, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, these verbal, abstract, spiritual, and seemingly otherworldly promises take on physical form in bread and wine, assuring us that God's promises are for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your promises that you have given to us in our own earthly pilgrimages. We thank you that 
They are our sustenance, our manna from heaven. We pray, O Lord, that we would not merely go through the routines and rituals of the Christian life, but that we would see these rituals as good, uh, but good means to a greater end of being fed by Christ. O Lord, we pray that you would indeed feed us as we come to your table here in this moment. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, to all of you who desire to come to diligently examine yourselves before you eat of the bread and drink of the wine. For while the benefit of this holy meal is great, if you partake of it by faith, the danger is drink in an unworthy manner. For then you will be eating and drinking judgment upon yourselves and will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, as the Apostle Paul says, if you judge yourselves truly, if you've been baptized in the name of the triune God, if you've professed faith before elders in another Christian Protestant church, and if you are presently seeking to live a godly life as a member of Christ's body here on earth. But if these things do not describe you, we would ask you to abstain and speak to myself or one of our elders after the service. Well, to those of you who do profess faith in Jesus Christ and are part of his body here on earth, we invite you to draw be laden and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, that is to say the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for all of our sins. Well, congregation of Christ, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. We do not presume to come to this table, O merciful God, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under the table of your Son, but you are our merciful and gracious Father. Grant us, therefore, that we may feed on our crucified Lord by faith, and that he may be united to us and we to him, who with you and the Holy Spirit is worthy of eternal thanks and praise. Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus, on the very night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This time, I'd like to invite our elders forward to administer the elements. If you all could please proceed forward, beginning with the front aisles. Thank you.
Well, may the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and your soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed upon him in your heart with thanksgiving. May the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body. Take and drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and be thankful. Let's pray and give thanks to our Lord. Almighty and ever-living God, we most heartily thank you. You have fed us who have rightly received this holy sacrament with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You assure us by this bread and wine of your favor and goodness toward us that we are members of the body of your Son, which is the blessed company of all faithful people. You have made us heirs of your everlasting kingdom by the merits of the most precious passion and death of your dear Son. And we most humbly pray, O Heavenly Father, assist us with your grace, that we may continue in that holy fellowship and do all such good works as you have prepared for us to walk in. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit, be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. Well, as we seek to respond to God's word and sacrament this morning, I invite you to stand and turn to 1B. It's a setting of Psalm 1, which speaks about the blessings that come when we meditate, when we feed upon the word of our God. So 1B, we'll be singing, singing stanzas 1 through 3.
be seated. Well, this time we will continue to worship our God through the giving of an offering. Again, if you're visiting with us, you are under no obligation to give. But as we do give, we remember the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, please stand as we lift up our voices and sing forth the Gloria Patri. Receive now God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift upon you his countenance and give you peace. Amen. Well, please joy, enjoy this time of fellowship and refreshments. And then at about 11.15, we'll gather again for our catechism service. Thank you.
please hang on to your Psalter hymnals as well as your order of worship. As you're finding your seats, I'd like to uh, take any prayer requests that you may have. Yes, Tony? Ashley? Yes, Ezekiel. Ben's coming home from Iowa today. All right. Well, thank you for those prayer requests. We will most definitely be keeping them in our prayers. Well, please stand if you're able for our call to worship, which comes from Psalm 23. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Indeed, our Lord is calling us to worship once again, and he's calling us to worship as our shepherd. And as our shepherd, he desires to feed us, us who are weak sheep in need of spiritual food. And so please turn with me in your Psalter hymnals to 23a. This is a setting of Psalm 23, and we'll be singing stanzas 1 through 5. So 23a stanzas 1 through 5.
You may be seated. The Apostle Paul calls us to give thanks for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, our entire life as Christians is to be a life of grateful thanksgiving to our God. And so in order to continue to inculcate this this habit of of thanksgiving within our lives, we will once again pray together this corporate prayer of thanksgiving, which is found in your order of worship. So please follow along with me as we pray, not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts, saying, Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, do give you most humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all people. We bless you for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your inestimable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we ask you, give us that due sense of all your mercies, that our hearts may be sincerely thankful and that we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service, and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading together verses 14 through 24. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 through verse 24. This passage comes after Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. And this is God coming both in judgment and in grace to our first parents. Well, please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please now turn to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading together verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This passage, the Apostle Paul is speaking about how the new covenant, the Gentiles have been grafted into the new covenant community. But as he's speaking about this very important aspect of the new covenant, he also speaks about the nature of the Old Testament covenants. So please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please turn in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. Uh, this morning we will be reciting together Belgic Confession, Article 17. Belgic Confession, Article 17. Well, Congregation of Christ, what do you believe about the recovery of fallen man? We believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death, 
and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him. And he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and make him blessed. Let's pray and ask that the Lord bless our consideration this morning. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have not remained hidden, but you have revealed yourself to us in, in your two books of Revelation. Oh Lord, we do stand in amazement at your book of creation in which all creatures serve as signs and words and symbols which point to your divinity and power and glory and majesty. Oh Lord, but we give you thanks most of all for your written word. We thank you that in your kind providence you have preserved your word through millennia that we here today might be able to draw nourishment and comfort from it. And so we ask that in this moment we would be edified, we would be comforted as we think about your unfolding plan of redemption that is revealed in Holy Scripture. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, boys and girls, it's been a few weeks, but according to the Belgic Confession, what are we called to do with our hearts and what are we called to do with our mouths? Marcus? Very good. And what is God? What is God according to the Belgian Confession? Violet? Yes, single, simple, and spiritual. How do we come to know who God is? How does God reveal himself? Isaiah? You're calling a creation. Creation, very good. Yes, the Bible and creation. Um, uh, they reveal to us who God is as creator, as sustainer, and as redeemer. You may have noticed that the Belgian Confession has sort of been going through the main articles of doctrine. And so the Belgian Confession uh, went on to speak about the doctrine of sin, original sin, and the um, station of two attributes of God. Anyone remember what attributes of God we consider? Emilani? Yes, merciful and just. God's mercy is demonstrated in election and God's justice is demonstrated in reprobation. Well, today we are going to be considering God's uh, grace, his mercy, his salvation as it unfolds in the various covenants of Scripture. And so now in the Belgian Confession, we are in the grace section. Um, we are in the grace section as we think about God's grace for sinners. And so this article is really all about the unfolding grace of God as it's manifest in the various covenants of Scripture. Now, you may have heard the term covenant of grace or covenants of grace, maybe to be more specific. And uh, this language comes in part from Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 2. So in Ephesians chapter 2, this passage that we recently read, Paul speaks about these covenants of promise. He, he speaks about the Old Testament covenants as covenants of a promise through which Christ was offered to the people living within those covenants. So this is part of the reason why theologians in the past have referred to these covenants of Scripture as covenants of grace. They're covenants through which the grace of God and Christ were administered to the people living within them. 
Now, Belgic Confession 17 doesn't use the term covenant of grace or covenants of grace. So the term isn't present, but the concept is. The concept is present here in Belgic Confession 17. This article very clearly teaches that from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, there's always been only one plan of salvation for the people of God. You'll notice that the Belgic Confession quotes um, Genesis 3.15. It references um, Genesis 3, and then it also uh, speaks about how Jesus' birth, his incarnation, was the fulfillment of Genesis 3. It's summarizing the entire unfolding drama of redemptive history, which unfolds by the, uh, through the means of covenant. And so this morning, what I'd like us to do is just to briefly consider these various covenants of Scripture, which begins in, in Genesis 3 and is completed in Revelation 22. And these covenants, are scripture, these covenants of grace are the means through which God unfolds his plan of salvation. The covenants of grace are God's response to Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis chapter 3. And so let's begin at the beginning. As we heard in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24, God's response to Adam and Eve's sin is to come both in judgment and in grace. God comes both in judgment and in grace. In Genesis 3.15, God both curses the serpent, but he also gives a promise of special redemptive grace to both Adam and Eve. He tells the serpent that there will be a singular male offspring from the seed of the woman who will one day crush his head. God is promising our first parents that salvation from death and salvation from the dominion of the devil will come through this offspring of the woman. And then at the end of Genesis 3, what does Adam do? Well, Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. Many theologians see this as a confession or profession of faith by Adam. Adam recognizes the promise of Genesis 3.15 and believes that God will send this singular male offspring from his wife and believes that Jesus Christ is that second Adam who will do what he failed to do. And so the covenant of grace or the covenants of grace begins here in Genesis 3.15. Boys and girls, I've used this illustration uh, for you in the past, but you can think of uh, with a main point at the beginning, and then each successive paragraph unfolds or unpacks that original main point. Well, the main point of Scripture is Genesis 3.15, and every successive covenant unfolds or unpacks or gives more information about that original main point of Genesis 3.15. And therefore, the fountainhead of the covenant of grace is Genesis 3.15, where God is promising to send a second Adam who will bring the people of God into God's seventh-day Sabbath rest, something that the first Adam failed to complete, failed to do. Well, what is the next covenant that we come across? Um, with Noah. But before we consider that covenant of, with Noah, another helpful way to think about these covenants of grace is like an acorn growing up into an oak tree. 
One theologian describes Genesis 3.15 like that of an uh, acorn. Um, and then each successive covenant is like that acorn sprouting and growing into a mature and uh, sturdy oak tree. And so that's what we see when we read scripture. We see this, this seed of the gospel growing as, as God continues to develop his plan of salvation. And so the next covenant that we come across is this covenant with Noah. And as I said in our Genesis sermon series, there are essentially two covenants that God makes with Noah. The first covenant is in Genesis 9, and the second covenant is in Genesis, or the first covenant is in Genesis 6, and the second covenant is in Genesis 9. That second covenant is really a covenant of common or preserving grace. It's not a part of God's um, covenant of grace that we're thinking about today. But that first covenant is. That first covenant is a covenant of special redemptive grace. If you remember in Genesis 6, God promised righteous Noah that he would preserve both Noah and his family through the waters of judgment through an ark. God promised that he would preserve righteous Noah through the waters of the flood through an ark. So you might ask, what does this covenant teach us about that original gospel promise of Genesis 3.15? What does this covenant teach us about the seed of the woman, about the work and ministry of the second Adam? Well, it teaches us that this second Adam will be perfectly righteous. The righteousness of Noah was, was but a faint echo of the perfect righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this covenant with Noah also teaches us that through Christ, we will be preserved through the just condemnation and wrath of God. Christ, in this sense, will be our ark when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And so you can see this covenant with Noah is giving us more information. We see that acorn seed of the gospel developing as God makes this covenantal promise with Noah. Well, as you continue to read on in the book of Genesis, you come to the patriarch Abram or Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, we learn about the Abrahamic covenant that God makes with our forefather. And as we considered earlier this morning, God essentially makes three promises with our forefather Abram. He promises to give Abram a land, a, a people, and he promises to bless the nations through his family. Now, as I said earlier this morning, all these promises find their fulfillment in Christ. And thus, the Abrahamic covenant teaches us that this seed of the woman, Christ, the second Adam, will bring us not to an earthly land in the Middle East. Christ will bring us to heaven. God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. The Abrahamic covenant teaches us that Christ is the true offspring of Abram. And through Christ, God will bless the nations. The Abrahamic family through Christ will take upon itself an international character. And so... In the Abrahamic covenant, we learn more about Genesis 3.15 and the work of the seed of the woman that God will bring into this world. Well, fast forward some more, and we come across the covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel at the foot of, at the foot of Mount Sinai with Moses as their mediator. This is sometimes referred to as the Mosaic covenant. And 
spans most of the pages of the Old Testament. And in this covenant, God gives his people the temple and the Mosaic law. The temple was the place where the people of God offered their sacrifices as an atonement for their sin. And the Mosaic law was the means through which Israel would maintain life in the earthly land of Canaan, the earthly representation of heaven. And so what does this covenant, this covenant which spans most of the pages of our Old Testament, what does this covenant teach us about Christ, about the seed of the woman? How does it unfold that original promise of Genesis 3.15? Well, this covenant teaches us that Christ is the true temple of God. Christ, as he comes to this earth, is the tabernacling presence of God among the people of God. Christ reveals the glory and presence of God just as the Old Testament sanctuary revealed the presence and glory of Yahweh. This covenant teaches us that Christ will offer the definitive sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. A sacrifice that is infinitely greater than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. This covenant also teaches us that Christ is the more perfect Israel of God. Christ will perfectly keep the law of God so that we can maintain life, not in the earthly land of Canaan, but in the heavenly Jerusalem. Through the righteousness of Christ, we inherit the new creation. And that inheritance is secured through the merits of our Lord. And so, the Mosaic Covenant teaches us a lot about the work of the second Adam. A lot about how the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of, our, of the serpent. Well, within the Mosaic Covenant, God also makes a covenant with David, King David, the prototypical king of the people of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7, David, who is king over Israel, longs to build God a permanent sanctuary. Up until this point, the Ark of the Covenant had been traveling around in a tent. And David desired to build a permanent structure for the Ark of God, the presence of God among his people. And what is God's response to David? God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. Rather, I'm going to build you a house. That is to say, I'm going to build you a dynasty, David. From this point forward, kingship in Judah will run through. And furthermore, one of your uh, descendants will be a perfect king. And because of his righteousness, he will earn and merit an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom. And so we may ask, what does this covenant with, with David teach us about Christ, the second Adam? What does this covenant with David teach us about Genesis 3.15? Well, it teaches us that Jesus is the true son of David. He is that perfect son who earned and merited that everlasting throne and everlasting kingdom. Jesus is our king who continues to reign to this present day as he's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Well, all of these covenants, all of these covenants of, of promise, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, are fulfilled in the new covenant. What does Jesus do at the Last Supper? He takes the cup and he raises it and says, this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood. Jesus is essentially telling his disciples at that moment that he, the second Adam, is here. He's here as that long-awaited seed of the woman. He's here as our ark. He's here as the offspring, singular offspring of Abraham. He is here as the temple of God. He is here to offer himself as the definitive sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He is here as the righteousness of God. And he is here as the true son of David. Jesus is saying that he is here enacting a new covenant. The fulfillment of all of those Old Testament covenants. And he enacts this new covenant through the shedding of his blood. And through the shedding of his blood, Jesus creates a new covenant people. Now you may have noticed at the end of Ephesians 2, Paul used a metaphor to describe the new covenant community. He used the metaphor of a temple. And he says that Christ is the cornerstone of this temple. The apostles and the new covenant prophets are the foundation of this temple. And Peter in 1 Peter 3 tells us that we, ordinary Christians, who live after the time of the apostles, we are living bricks stacked upon this foundation. This is the makeup of the new covenant community. Now, Christ inaugurates the new covenant in his first advent. He won't consummate this new covenant until his second advent. Or to use the imagery of that temple, Christ began this building project in his first advent through his life, death, and resurrection. He won't finish the building project of the new covenant community until his second coming. Now listen to what we read in uh, Revelation 21 as John describes the consummation, the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now that last phrase that John refers to, that I will be their God and they shall be my people, this is the heartbeat of every covenant that's included in the covenant of grace. And it is a formula that that will be repeated at the end of the age when our God will consummate the new creation. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so... We see in Revelation 21 and 22, this acorn seed of the gospel uh, developing into a fully grown mature oak tree. And so, uh, there are many, many differences in the various epochs of scripture. In fact, those are the things that are easy to discern. However, no matter what epoch an individual lived under, God administered the same salvation, faith in Christ alone. And so it's these covenants of grace that function like a thread that tie together the entirety of Scripture. 
from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22. So yes, there are a lot of unique things when you consider Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Israel in exile and then the new covenant. But what ties all of these various epochs together are these covenants of grace in which God administered the same salvation, faith in Christ alone that's given freely by his sovereign, um, sovereign grace. And so as you reflect upon your own view of scripture, do you, uh, do you see scripture as being fundamentally unified? from Genesis to Revelation, or do you view Scripture merely as a compilation of disparate texts? Do you marvel at the beauty of God's plan of salvation? I mean, when you think about God's unfolding plan of salvation, it is beautiful. When you see the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, as you see the types and shadows that God gives us to give us a, a full or picture of the work of the second Adam, and then as you consider how Christ in his incarnation fulfills all of those types, shadows, promises, and prophecies, it is beautiful. It is a work of a divine artist. So do you marvel at the beauty of redemptive history? When you read scripture, do you merely see moral maxims that apply to life in this world or do you see the gospel do you hear the gospel a message that is counterintuitive that you can't find anywhere else in this creation well we confess along with article 17 that we believe that our good god by his marvelous wisdom and goodness saves sinners that's what covenant theology is all about our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, saves sinners. He does this beginning in Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 22. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us in your sin, but you came to man while he was trembling and clothed him with skins. And we thank you, O Lord, that through Christ we do have salvation in the midst of this veil of tears. We pray, O Lord, that through your word and spirit you would comfort us and assure us of your good will towards us. Uh, we thank you, O Lord, that we have not only the New Testament, but we also have the Old Testament, which gives us a full orb picture of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we learn to appreciate all the types and shadows and imageries that we are given in the Old Testament. Although we also lift up before you the needs of your people. Again, you know that we, our, our needs are many and our hearts are heavy. And we commit to you all of the unspoken requests, trusting that you will uh, show yourself to be who you are, a God who cares for his people. Uh, we lift up specifically Joshua Gilbert as he continues to serve in his deployment to the Middle East. We pray that you would grant him strength and perseverance. We pray that you would also preserve him um, in this de uh, deployment. Uh, we also pray for others in our midst who, who serve in the military. We pray for uh, Ben and, and Bobby. And we pray for Ben uh, that you grant him safe travel as he is coming back from Iowa. Uh, we also pray for Noelle as she has her infusion this week. We pray that you grant her strength. Oh Lord, we pray that you be with us the rest of this day. Grant us rest, both physically and spiritually. And may you equip us to love our neighbor and glorify you as we uh, begin another week. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand as we respond to God's word this morning by lifting up our voices and singing, Oh, the deep unbounded riches.
Receive now God's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.